the Sonoran Desert is hot. Really hot. Summer temperatures usually exceed 40 degrees Celsius and often hit 48 degrees. The landscape has a rough, rugged beauty. Jagged mountain peaks moulded by volcanic eruptions thousands, millions of years ago. The ground beneath your feet, baked by the sun, looks more like dust, sand. Strong gales pull in from the west, from the coast of the Pacific Ocean. And as you look across the vast, foreboding landscape, these winds blow grit from the ground up into your eyes. The landscape has a rough, rugged beauty. And this all sounds rather inhospitable, lifeless. But unlike many other deserts, the Sonoran Desert gets rain twice a year, in the winter and the summer. This helps sustain over 2,000 species of plants, like the saguaro, a cactus with a tall cylindrical central section that has these shorter limbs which grow up and out of the central section which means that each cactus sort of looks like a criminal surrendering to the police after a long, high-speed car chase. Except, saguaros grow up to 12 meters tall, 40 feet. Seven men, or seven and a half women of average height, stacked on top of each other. The only place you can find saguaros is in the Sonoran Desert. Cutting one down is a felony. If caught, it'll cost you $1,500 in fines, maybe more. The saguaro has a little cousin named the organ pipe cactus, which only grows to about 5 meters, about the height of three men, and is so named because it looks like a pipe organ, with lots of cylinders shooting up from the ground. The organ pipe cactus is rare to find in the US, it only exists in one area of the Sonoran Desert, and this area, named Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument, has been designated a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve. In the summer of 2002, a park ranger was shot and killed during a high-speed car chase through the Sonoran Desert. From the 80s onwards, U.S. authorities had cracked down on border security in urban areas on the U.S.-Mexico border. This sent drug smugglers toward the Biosphere Reserve, 94% of which is designated to be so-called wilderness, away from prying eyes. Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument became a key route into the U.S. for drug cartels from Mexico. The ranger who was shot in 2002 had been trying to apprehend members of a drug cartel. Most of the reserve was then closed to the public on grounds of safety. It stayed closed for 11 years, only reopening in 2014, after a variety of border surveillance measures had been put in place. But consider for a moment the Sonoita Pupfish. Let's call him Steve. Steve the Pupfish lives in Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument, in a pond fed by Quito Baquito Springs, a rare oasis of water bang in the middle of the desert. Steve doesn't know about any of the drama I just described. 
He doesn't know about the arrival of drug cartels in the area in the 90s. He doesn't know about the killing of the park ranger. And a park closure? What do you mean, park closure? He's been here the whole time. Steve doesn't know about any of that human stuff. What Steve knows is that during the breeding season, his scales turn an intense blue colour in an attempt to try and woo Linda, Brenda, and the other pupfish in Quito Paquito. Steve has some pupfish neighbours who live in two short stretches of the nearby Sonoita River. But these three places, Quito Paquito Pond, plus two sections of river, these three small places are the only areas in the world where you can find Sonoita pupfish. In total, they make up an area of about four square miles. And the pond is the stronghold. The river populations of pupfish are far smaller. Kitabakito is key to the survival of this species. The water in the pond can sometimes exceed 35 degrees Celsius. And it's salty. Really salty. Two, sometimes even three times saltier than seawater. Oh, and the water has basically no oxygen dissolved in it. But Steve, he doesn't worry about any of these things. He's resilient. Remarkably resilient. He doesn't mind the heat. Doesn't mind the salt. And to deal with the lack of oxygen, he goes long periods basically holding his breath. When you or I run out of oxygen, our bodies produce lactic acid. Like the burning sensation in your calves that builds up when you run. But Steve, and Linda, and Brenda, and all the other pupfish, Steve gets around the lack of oxygen by producing ethanol. Which is to say, pupfish are basically alcoholics, homebrewers, distilling their own personal liquor for constant enjoyment. Because of this, Steve could provide answers to human problems. For instance, after studying pupfish more closely, we could use what we learn to try and better understand alcoholism in humans. It could help us treat alcoholics. Pupfish isn't special in this regard. Scientific and pharmaceutical innovations often stem from studying animals in extreme habitats. Cancer, too. The pupfish's production and use of alcohol is a form of anaerobic metabolism, which is the same method used by cancer cells to survive. By considering the pupfish, we could gain a better understanding of cancer cells. But it might be too late. You're listening to Roundness, the Queen's Library podcast. We're going to build a wall. It's going to be built. It's not even, believe it or not, it's not even a difficult thing to do. We're going to build a wall, folks. We're going to build a wall. Don't worry. We're going to build a wall. That wall will go up so fast, your head will spin. And you'll say, you know, he meant it. And you know what else I mean? Mexico is going to pay for the wall. They're going to pay for the wall, and they're going to enjoy it, okay? They're going to enjoy it. We're not paying for that wall. Not now, not ever. Congress must fund the border wall, 
You're listening to construction work at the US-Mexican border for the wall, the Trump wall. Heavy machinery, diggers digging into the soil, road rollers compacting the ground, jackhammer trucks pummeling their way down, down, down into the earth. When I said earlier that Steve didn't know about human stuff, didn't know about the arrival of the cartel or the killing of the ranger, the closure of the park. That was probably true. But Steve also probably does know about the construction of the wall. Or, at least, he knows something's wrong. This summer, the flow of water in Quito Paquito Springs suddenly dropped. It's not unusual for water levels at Quito Paquito to fluctuate and the water level has been slowly reducing. Ten years ago, the average water flow was 30 gallons per minute. At the start of this year, it was 11. But this summer, over the course of just a few months, that dropped from 11 gallons per minute to just 7, the lowest it's ever been. The drop has exposed the muddy pond floor in many areas, little bald patches that used to be covered by water. Authorities have blamed a number of causes, including drought in the area. But there have been droughts like this before, and Quito Paquito has never seen such a quick and extreme drop in water levels, which suggests another cause. The dramatic decrease in water levels began just as construction for the border wall intensified in the area. You might ask how putting up a wall affects a natural spring. Where exactly is all this water disappearing to? And what's a wall got to do with it? When you turn on your kitchen tap at home, say, to fill up a glass of water, the water that flows out is so immediate and so plentiful that you might not think about where it comes from. But water is scarce. And by 2050, it's predicted that demand for water will be 55% higher than it is today. Changing consumer habits cause changes in water use. The rise in demand for meat had a massive effect on water consumption. You need over 15,000 litres of water to produce one kilogram of beef. But one kilogram of potatoes needs just 287 litres of water. There was this film, came out in 2015, called The Big Short. Had some big name stars. Brad Pitt, Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, Christian Bale, The film was based on a true story about the global financial crisis in 2007. And the guy who Christian Bale played, a guy named Michael Burry, he was the first guy to predict the recession coming. And he made a lot of money, basically betting on it happening, at a time when most people were laughing him out of the room. These days, Burry has a new prediction. He's focusing most of his new investments on one thing. Water. He thinks water scarcity is going to be the defining issue of our future. Back to the wall. Its construction requires 318,000 litres of water every day. Mostly to make concrete, but also to help counteract all the dust that's produced. To source water, construction workers drill down to form wells, pumping water out of the earth. This layer of water deep, deep below our feet, 
is called groundwater, and it's what also feeds Kito Pakito. There's a really similar story from 2013 from the Mojave, the desert which borders the Sonoran Desert. There's another species of pupfish, which is only found in this big cave-like pool of water in the Mojave called Devil's Hole. There was a man who owned land which bordered the edge of Devil's Hole. He built a well right adjacent to the boundary. When he turned on the well, the water level in Devil's Hole dropped dramatically. Before the well, there were hundreds of pupfish, up to 600 at peak times during the year. But by 2013, when the well was turned on, the population then dropped to just 35 fish, an all-time low. Perhaps in an attempt to avoid this happening again, the Department of Homeland Security has a rule that you can't drill within five miles of Quito Bakito. And the well that's been drilled for the wall, it's not breaking this rule because it's eight miles from the springs. But the water underneath the well is uphill from the water underneath Quito Piquito, and as water flows downhill, this means that border wall construction could be removing water that would have otherwise flowed to Quito Piquito. It seems the Department of Homeland Security's five-mile rule doesn't account for this. What does this mean for Steve? Pupfish are notoriously resilient. Remember, they can survive in hot and salty water that doesn't have very much oxygen in it. But they're also endangered. And as water levels fall, the overall temperature of the water increases. Think about boiling a kettle. The less water in it, the faster it boils. And the saltiness of the water increases because there's less water to dilute the salt. Steve might be on his last legs. The failure of the five-mile rule is a failure by the Department of Homeland Security to understand the interconnectedness of the world's natural systems. You can't just pick up a stick and draw lines in the sand, marking off five miles on each side of Quito Piquito, hoping everything will be fine. It doesn't work like that. The natural world doesn't listen to man-made boundaries. Water, particularly, doesn't care for our borders. The River Nile flows through Tanzania, Burundi, Rwanda, the Congo, Kenya, Uganda, Eritrea, South Sudan, Ethiopia, North Sudan, and when it gets to Egypt, drains into the Mediterranean Sea. This creates problems. The president of the African Development Bank, Akinwumi Adesina, said in February 2020, that anywhere where you have shared water resources, there are always going to be geopolitical tensions. Take Ethiopia. Ethiopia has an energy shortage. 65 million Ethiopians currently lack a regular energy supply. Lights flicker. Power cuts are frequent. So, for the last nine years, the government has been building a great big dam, the so-called Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam provide more power, using water to create energy. It opened earlier this year. It is the largest hydroelectric power plant in the whole of Africa. This worries Egypt. Now, Egypt is no stranger to dams. 
Egyptians had them for thousands of years, and Pharaoh Menes, who established the first dynasty by uniting Upper and Lower Egypt, built a massive dam on the Nile in 2900 BC. Egypt sits downstream from the other countries that the Nile flows through. It's the last place the water flows through before it gets to the Mediterranean Sea. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam worries Egypt because the dam is holding back water. Take a guess at what percentage of Egypt's water comes from the Nile. Remember, Egypt's pretty dry. More than 90% of its land consists of desert areas, including a chunk of the Sahara. So you'd be right to guess that a high percentage of Egypt's water consumption relies on this single source, the Nile. The figure is 95%. Egypt is also dependent on the river for its agriculture and much of its industry. The very existence of the country has been based on the river's waters for thousands of years. So maybe the Egyptian government is right to be worried about the Renaissance dam. Egypt is asking for assurances from Ethiopia about what will happen if, in the near future, there's a drought on the Nile. If this happens, Egypt wants hydroelectric power production to pause. And without this agreement, Egypt is worried that one million jobs could be lost, which would be a $1.8 billion loss in economic output. There's also disagreement over how much river water Ethiopia should commit to releasing downstream towards Egypt. Both nations are thinking in their own self-interests. Egypt wants a higher amount. Ethiopia wants a lower amount. And they're gridlocked. Ethiopia accuses Egypt of not wanting to reach a deal. Egypt accuses Ethiopia of not wanting to reach a deal. The third party might have to get involved to help the two nations reach an agreement. And that third party might end up being the U.S., The US government is a long-standing ally of both Ethiopia and Egypt and has offered to host further meetings between the nations in Washington, D.C. But that offer probably wasn't helped by Donald Trump, who in October 2020 said that Egypt might, and I quote, blow up that dam. And the US has its own water problems anyway. The five-mile rule around Quito-Pequito is not the first time that US laws have ignored how water systems actually work. The Arizonan water rights system treats groundwater and surface water as disconnected resources, as totally separate things. These laws have been around for over a century, largely unchanged. But as shown by both Devil's Hole and Quito-Pequito, groundwater and surface water are not separate at all. Every day, every minute, every second, they interact and affect each other. Treating them as disconnected is a fiction. Maybe you're hearing this and thinking, boy, Arizona sure is stupid. But this fiction extends all through our lives, our beliefs, our understanding of the world. Take the Amazon, or any rainforest. Pretty much all of us know that deforestation of the rainforests is bad, really bad. But why? Why is it bad? That seems like a stupid question. Bear with me. Imagine for a moment that I'm an alien who's just arrived on Earth. How would you explain to me why deforestation of the rainforests is bad? Most of us would probably say something about how the rainforests are the lungs of the Earth that they remove CO2 from the atmosphere and provide oxygen. 
So by cutting down trees, we are reducing the amount of CO2 that is removed from the atmosphere, which means CO2 levels rise. And all this is true. Then me, the alien, asks you, if deforestation is so bad for all of us, who exactly is doing it? Who is destroying the forests? And you would say, well, we are. Humans are causing deforestation. And this is also true. But what you probably wouldn't say is that humans are causing deforestation, sure, yeah. But deforestation is also causing deforestation. Within tropical rainforests, the total amount of rain that falls will generally follow one of three parts. One quarter is caught by the canopy, so the leaves of the trees. And this water evaporates from the leaves into the atmosphere. 50% of the rainfall will reach the soil, either falling directly or dripping down plants. It reaches the soil, infiltrates the soil, and is taken up by the plants, and is then transpired from the leaves of the trees into the atmosphere. The final quarter of rainfall reaches the surface and runs over the land to rivers, where it will eventually leave the forest system and flow down the river to a different place. Of the 100% rainfall that falls in our forest, only a quarter of it actually leaves the forest. Three quarters of it is recycled because evaporation is returning vapour to the air, transpiration is returning vapour to the air, and this increases humidity, which contributes to rainfall. That's Mrs MacDonald from the Geography Department here at Queen Elizabeth. So within the Amazon tropical rainforest, rainfall can be recycled really, really quickly within five days. Deforestation is significantly affecting this rainfall recycling because if we remove the trees, we are going to affect what happens to that rainfall. So the proportion that is caught by the tree canopy and evaporated will reduce. The proportion that reaches the soil and is taken up by the trees will reduce. So that 75% of rainfall that was recycled is going to be significantly lower and more is going to be lost from the forest. This is going to cause the air to become drier and the climate ultimately to become drier. And that's going to cause um, further forest dieback. Droughts in the tropical rainforest put stress upon the vegetation. Trees grow less, they're more susceptible to disease. So the drier the climate becomes, the more likely we are to see the forest dying back. So what was initially human-caused deforestation can destabilise the system to the point that it is naturally dying back. Deforestation causing further deforestation. This is called positive feedback, when a change in the system causes more of the change to occur. We see this type of feedback in the oceans too. As global temperatures rise, the oceans get hotter. Some waterborne animals may not be able to survive in water that's too hot, 
not all species are as resilient as Steve and the other pupfish. But as oceans get hotter, something else happens too. As the oceans warm, more carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere. That's Dr Westcott from the chemistry department. As liquids warm up, we can think of the particles that make up the water, the H2O molecules, beginning to vibrate more. They're getting warmer, they're getting more kinetic energy, and they start to bump into each other. What about the gases that are dissolved in the water, like CO2? Gases, when they're dissolved in liquids, do not actually interact with these water molecules very tightly. When the water molecules start to interfere with each other and bang into each other, it causes the CO2 molecules to leave the liquid really easily. A simple analogy for this that we're all aware of is when we have a can of Coke. If we open it and we leave it to one side, we notice it gets flat. Carbon dioxide only stays in the Coke under pressure. As soon as we release that pressure, its solubility in the Coke is very low. As the Coke warms up to room temperature, we experience the fact that our fizzy drink will go flat. This is similar to what is happening with the world's oceans. With more CO2 in the atmosphere, temperatures rise even more, warming oceans, releasing more CO2 from the oceans into the atmosphere, which will raise temperatures even more, with us warming oceans, and releasing more CO2 from the oceans into the atmosphere, releasing more CO2 from the oceans into the atmosphere, warming oceans, which will raise temperatures even more CO2 from the oceans into the atmosphere. So temperatures rise CO2 from the oceans into the atmosphere. A really vicious cycle. The problem is that most of the time, when we think about the warming planet, or about deforestation, or about disappearing water sources, when we think about the negative effects we are having on the planet, we think about each effect as a sort of isolated thing. One of the critiques that 21st century economists are now levelling on their 20th century counterparts. That's Mrs McDonald again. Is that in the 20th century, economics focused too much on the economy as an open system that operated in isolation from other systems. So the term externalities was often used by 20th century economists and, and particularly in terms of negative environmental impacts, they were known as negative externalities, things that perhaps had to be um, considered or given an afterthought. Things that you should make a note of, but then basically ignore. Rather than things that were absolutely fundamental to the healthy functioning of the economy. There's this story I heard that's to do with negative externalities, about William X, Duke of Aquitaine in France. William was a good Catholic, so in 1137, he decided to make the popular pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain, to the grave of one of the Twelve Apostles, Saint James the Great. This pilgrimage is still popular today, Over 200,000 pilgrims make the journey every year. But on Good Friday of that year, 1137, William drops to the ground. His face is covered in cold sweat. Agonizingly, he's only five, maybe six miles away from Santiago de Compostela. But he can go no further. 
there, by the side of the road, he dies. The night before, for dinner, he caught a fish from a nearby river. The locals warned him the waters were contaminated, but he was hungry. The guy needed to eat. Apparently, the toxins in the fish took his life. This isn't just a funny story from rough, tough, medieval times. No, this is happening in the US. Today. Right now. Every single state in the US has issued health advisories for rivers, lakes and bays. Advisories which warn against eating the fish in certain waterways because they have been contaminated with industrial chemicals. Say you live in Portland, Oregon, and your dad loves fishing on the weekends. He says... Get in the car, we're driving to the Willamette River, fishing day trip. But when you get to the river, you're met with a bunch of warnings. Children six years of age or younger should not eat more than one four-ounce fish meal every seven weeks. Women of childbearing age, especially those who are pregnant or planning to become pregnant and breastfeeding mothers, should not eat more than one eight-ounce fish meal per month. Women past the age of childbearing, children older than six years, and all other healthy adults may safely consume up to one eight-ounce fish meal per week. All of that because the fish contain dangerous levels of mercury, PCBs, dioxins, and chlorinated pesticides. All these lovely different toxins. These toxic fish in the Willamette River are the result of externalities created by a host of economic activities like mining, electricity production, farming, manufacturing, and urban development. But because these toxic fish don't negatively impact the companies and the people that carry out these activities, those companies and people have little incentive to stop polluting the river. It seems like we've accepted the polluted waters and the toxic fish, and accepted that the best course of action is to stick a warning sign in the ground. Let's take this to its logical extreme. Companies keep polluting waterways, reaping large profits remaining largely unaffected by the negative impacts of the pollution. They view the pollution as a negative externality that is external to their own interests and operations. And authorities, continuing to put up warning signs in response. Warning, fish contaminated, do not eat. And fishermen, not being able to fish there. Eventually, the logical endpoint of all this is that there's simply no non-toxic fish left. No more smoked salmon and cream cheese sandwiches. No more tuna mayo. No more fish and chips. If we want our fish to not be toxic, we need to have a rethink. Taxing companies or reimbursing those who actually bear the brunt of the externalities, such as the fishermen, hasn't made these waterways fishable again. Government intervention has, so far, been badly informed and often unenforced, and it hasn't fixed the problem. So what will? If we want non-toxic fish, we need the companies responsible to stop viewing waterway pollution as an abstract negative externality and start viewing it as something that is fundamentally important. Because polluting waterways now will place limits on economic activity in the future. If clean, unpolluted river water has become harder to come by, that's going to affect countless businesses and manufacturers in the future. 
So until we start pricing the future costs of pollution into goods and manufacturing processes right now, it's unlikely we're going to fix the toxic fish problem. And if we're going to learn anything from the border wall construction, from Quito Paquito, and from Devil's Hole, from Steve, Linda, Brenda, from deforestation in the rainforest causing even more deforestation, if we're going to learn anything from all these interconnected systems, it's that it's unlikely that the river pollution is only affecting the fish. There will be knock-on effects, some of which will be unexpected and will catch us off guard. Like Steve facing death because of border wall construction happening miles away from his pond. So the toxic fish problem is not just about losing fish and chips. Even if, to me, that would be motivation enough. Thanks for listening to this episode of Roundness. There's something we couldn't quite fit into the whole pupfish narrative. Something important. There have been protests at the border wall construction near Quito Paquito Springs. But not just because of Steve and Linda and Brenda. The Tohono O'odham tribe have lived in the area for centuries. In 1854, the US bought Mexican land and expanded southward in what is now Arizona and New Mexico. This includes Organ Pipe National Monument. The land purchase split up the Otham ancestral home. Today, the tribe's 30,000 members can move freely back and forth between the US and Mexico, as long as they have their tribal ID. The Otham tribe consider Quito to be sacred. To them, it's a living thing, something that's been provided by God. Protesters have been violently dispersed by border officials. Joe Biden has said that he'll stop border wall construction. Only time will tell whether water levels at Quito Paquito will return, whether the water system will recover. Maybe Steve's holding his breath as he waits to see if things do get better. Although, come to think of it, Steve's holding his breath most of the time. If you want to hear about mutant fish with green intestines and what groundwater has to do with them, there's a great podcast episode which tells this story with the help of Hollywood actor Mark Ruffalo. You know, the guy who plays the Hulk in The Avengers? You can find a link to that in this episode's notes. There's also a link to an article about the problem with viewing things as negative externalities. You can find details of all our sources in the episode notes. Thank you to my guests, Mrs. McDonald and Dr. Westcott. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. Email us. Our address is library at qebarnett.co.uk. Thank you.